This is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings, and I'm your host, Greg Campion. On this show, we intend to dig below the headlines to find out what's really going on in public and private asset markets around the world. From fixed income and equities to alternatives and real estate, we'll be speaking with Bearings experts from across the globe to get a glimpse into where they're seeing risks and opportunities today. If you like the show and want to hear more from us, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and search Streaming Income. Or visit us on bearings.com. That's B-A-R-I-N-G-S.com. On today's show, I welcomed back prior streaming income guest, Martin Horn, who has recently been named head of public fixed income here at Bearings. Based in London, Martin has been with the firm since 2002 and has led the global high yield business since 2017. In his new role, Martin continues to head up Bearings global high yield team while also taking on the additional responsibility of overseeing the firm's emerging market corporate credit, structure credit, and investment-grade credit teams. Bearings' public fixed income platform has over $175 billion in assets under management as of June 30th, 2019, and is staffed with a team of over 140 investment professionals. You know, I think Martin did a really nice job in this conversation of setting the stage and bringing us up to speed in terms of where we are from a high-yield perspective. But he also did a nice job of reminding us it's important to be flexible, potentially be contrarian, and also to focus on asset selection as opposed to indexing. All right, Martin Horn, welcome back to the show. Pleasure to be here. So uh, you were one of the first two guests on streaming income. So I have a debt of gratitude to, to pay to you for, for being uh, so brave as to come onto this brand new show about a year ago. So thank you for that. Yeah, I'm amazed you've asked me back, but we'll give it a go. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. You know, listening back to that original show called Climbing High Yields Wall of Worry, in case our listeners want to check that one out, some things have changed since then. Um, some things haven't. So actually, a lot hasn't changed. Uh, we were talking about Brexit back then. We were talking about trade wars. We were talking about the potential for a global recession. Today, we largely find ourselves talking about the same issues. Some things have changed. So back then we were talking about how high yield might perform in a rising rate environment. So we were really focused on that. Today we're in a different spot when it comes to rates. So maybe let's start there. Um, Talk me through where we are today from your perspective when it comes to high yield. And maybe let's focus on that rate component first. Yeah, I guess the rate component is really a function of where the real world and the economics around the real world are going. Central banks globally are in easing mode, and that's a reflection of the fact that we're clearly late cycle. I don't think that debate is still out there. We we are late cycle. It's just the nature of the cycle that we should talk about more later on. But banks are easing. No one cares about inflation anymore, frankly. That brings certain stereotypical reactions from global flows of funds. You've Mm -hmm. seen money come out of variable rate products like loans and into fixed rate products. Mm -hmm. It has compressed yields globally. Um, We're already in a yield compression environment, and I think we're all now familiar with Japanification being a a phrase that um, we don't need to look up on thesauruses anymore. (laughs) So there is this concept that we're in a low-growth environment. We've got 15 trillion of negative yield bonds out there in the marketplace, and that means there is a global search for yield because investors have to be invested somewhere um, they know we're late cycle. They're very stereotypically taking overweights off and, and diversifying their money to make sure that they've got a wide enough spread of risk components. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
central banks have been the major influence in the market since we last talked. Yeah, yeah. So talk about that 15 trillion of negative yielding debt. That's a pretty massive technical out there in the market. Is that more of a factor for investment grade markets or does that really affecting high yield as well? Well, it starts with investment grade, but ultimately, you know, when you get a significant part of the marketplace showing a complete lack of yield content, it will erode yields elsewhere because Mm -hmm. investors in a particular subset will reach down into different markets to try and compensate for the fact they're just not getting paid. Mm -hmm. So yields have come down certainly on treasuries quite substantially from the point we were sitting here a year ago. So that's obviously helped performance of investment grade bonds, helped performance somewhat uh, for high yield bonds as well. When we talk about high yield specifically, and we and we look at the other component of the equation here on the credit side, uh, what are you seeing there broadly? Things like issuer behavior, the default picture. Everybody's been trying to call the end of this credit cycle for what three years now. Um, what are you seeing on the ground today? Yeah, and I think that's a major thing to focus on. Everyone has been talking about the end of this cycle for about three years now. And what happens when you talk about something for three years? Well, firstly, it almost becomes inevitable because you talk about the end of the cycle. FDs and CEOs change their behavior. They change their return on capital assumptions. They change the way that they deploy or don't deploy CapEx. They change the way that they either have or don't have inventory levels higher or lower than they were expecting to. So we've seen a gradual shift in the way that corporates have positioned themselves in line with this largely held acceptance that we're in a low growth environment. Um, Such a long adjustment period almost inevitably means that corporates will be better placed to absorb what's coming. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a confusion in the financial markets, if you like, really driven by the way that technicals drive particularly equity markets up and down like yo-yos. And if there's a reference point to market sentiment is how the equity markets are doing. You you see constant references to the equity markets from all sorts of market commentators and politicians today. And if you take as a barometer for sentiment what you see from the equity markets, you would take the conclusion that actually we're heading for something really, really big because equity market behavior is so erratic. Mm. But actually, in the real landscape, it feels like we're heading for something more measured, much more like the recession that we saw in the 1990s, where it was a measured walk down from a very gradual incline. I think that's exactly where we are, that we're in a measured walk down, that we are in that adjustment period. And we should remember that credit does pretty well in mild recessions. In mild recessions, spreads stay wide and defaults stay manageable. They stay identifiable and good managers should be able to circumvent their way around the opportunity set there and really um, do very well for their investors. Hmm. It's interesting to me to hear you talk about, okay, issuers have been talking about this credit cycle ending for three years now. It almost, it sounds like has become a self-fulfilling prophecy to some degree when it comes to issuers becoming more disciplined. Um, it's interesting to me, I was looking at an article in Bloomberg uh, over the last week or so. Um, title of the article is New Twist in Red Hot Junk Debt Market. Some deals are flopping. And the article is interesting to me because it reads quite negatively, um, talking about, you know, while there's a lot of deals being printed in the leveraged loan and high yield bond space, 
actually, if you look beneath the headlines, what's going on is uh, a lot of riskier deals are being pulled or investors are demanding a lot more concessions. When I read that, rightly or wrongly, I actually say, that's not a negative thing. That's actually a pretty positive thing, isn't it? I mean, would you agree with that view of it? Yeah, our markets forever have been full of uh, stereotypes. And one of the stereotypes is when interest rates are where they are, the bond market is open, money will flow into the bond market, and therefore lots of refinancings will be done through the bond market. So it's inevitable that you're going to get a lot of issuance. The scary thing for me would be if that article hadn't been written. Because <laughs> in 2007, I can tell you that nothing got pulled. Mm. And that was a market that totally lacked discipline. It could not be more, it's night and day right, um, right. in terms of the difference that we see in the markets today. It's not that deals that you should avoid aren't getting done. There are definitely deals out there that should be avoided. It's definitely not a time to be index tracking. But if you want the 2007 comparison, um, people who tell you that we're in similar territory, frankly, weren't there in 2007 because mm. this landscape is very, very different. Um, it is still a moment, though, to be selective. Got it. Got it. Okay. So we talked about the rate environment. We talked about the credit picture. So net-net, if we look at where we are year-to-date, talk to me just about the performance that we've seen across the so-called core four asset classes in high yield, U.S. loans, European loans, U.S. bonds, and European bonds. Where are we from a performance and a spread perspective? Both the European and the U.S. bond markets, as we sit here today, are sort of edging. The U.S. market has already gone through low double-digit returns. The European market looks like it's heading that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, both the European and U.S. loan markets have delivered a performance about half of that. And again, entirely predictable because money's come out of variable rate and into fixed rate. Mm-hmm. As a result, fixed rate spreads have compressed and you've, you've seen capital appreciation through the fixed rate market. Um, the, the loan market has somewhat lagged and the US loan market only recently had its first week of inflows after 36, 37 weeks mm-hmm. of constant outflows. Yeah. So very stereotypical reaction in terms of performance. Equally, we've started to see the tide turn because the U.S. loan market in particular, which suffered all those outflows, got to a spread level where it was materially wide to its European counterpart and materially wide to what was on offer in the bond market. And during September, we've seen the first month where there's been a material outperformance by the U.S. loan market. Again, Mm -hmm. that should happen because most of these companies are doing pretty well. Yep. It's not a disaster scenario out there. And if spreads in one asset class get too wide, you should see them correct after a period of time, particularly in an environment where investors are trying to find those value points. Yeah. And maybe this is just the nature of the asset class. If you read the headlines on a daily basis, you would not think that this was an asset class that case of U.S. high yield up 11.5% year to date. In the case of European high yield up nine and a quarter. I think you'd be surprised looking at those numbers. So all in, it's through the third quarter, at least, it's been a pretty good year for high yield. Now, I think obviously this is not an asset class that you want to rest on your laurels. Uh, I think you need to obviously continue to be very disciplined about your risk management, et cetera. So as you look at the rest of the year and as 2020 starts to come into view, and you know, I know you and your team are managing high yield multi-credit strategies that look across all of the sub-asset classes that I mentioned, plus some other kind of opportunities outside of the index. But as you look across loans, bonds, US, Europe, 
uh, what is is anything jumping out at you today as uh, offering particular value, or how how is the team thinking about relative value as we sit here today? We've been moving into U.S. loans and have been doing so since sort of April May time, which was a little bit too early because the bond market was still running. Mm-hmm. Uh, but actually, we're reaping the benefits of that, and I think that's you know calling um, those market movements is quite difficult if you're not in those markets because. Yep. I think the opportunity set will be presented to investors more on a three-month basis than a one- or two-year basis. So I think you've just got to be more nimble in the way you allocate assets around. This is why that we're big advocates of multi-strat philosophies because it allows investors to really move nimbly mm-hmm. where that value point is. And never confuse your ability to outthink market returns with logic. And what I mean by that is if you look back in 2012, 13, and 14, the European credit markets wholly outperformed their US equivalents. And yet the economic environment in the sovereign debt crisis years, which we were in then, mm-hmm. was far worse in Europe. Mm. You know, credit doesn't necessarily offer you a return profile that you would say is linked to risk. It's far more technically based in where those flow, those opportunities will present themselves. I think they'll present themselves on a shorter basis. And, and that's why... On a relative value today, we're, we're longer the U.S. loan market. Ask me in four months' time, I might give you a very different answer mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. the value points will have changed and the market flows are that much more uh, nimble in the way that they move spread opportunity and yield opportunity around. Okay, okay. So bond markets had a great first three quarters. Loan market has lagged somewhat. A lot of that obviously being a technical move in terms of fund flows. You referenced the 30-some-odd weeks of outflows. Uh, pretty staggering if you look at probably since we were sitting here a year ago, almost the entire year since has been weekly outflows from loan funds. So at some point, that technical pressure leads to an opportunity. And it sounds like that's something that you and the team are trying to capitalize on now. One question for you just as you think about loans versus bonds. If you're sitting here in an environment today, and I don't know if this is the way you're thinking about it or not, but if spreads have come in a decent bit and nothing is necessarily screaming value today across that high yield universe, are loans in theory more defensive? So is it, is it more defensive to up your allocation to loans and kind of wait for an overreaction in the bond market? That's very true. Again, it's a technically driven characteristic of the loan market in that a lot of the investors that hold loans are locked capital vehicles in the form of CLOs. And so typically what you find is when the financial markets sell off, loans are one of the least correlated to that sell-off. The the classic example is in 2018, there were very few financial markets that provided any positive returns, and yet the the loan markets did that just Mm. because it's not as excitable. Um, It's 100% senior secured asset class. It's variable rates. So even if you care about interest rates, you're not going to get too upset depending on your expectations Mm -hmm. if you own a loan product. The bond market over time, I believe, um, should pay you more. It should pay you more because you're taking a fixed rate position. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of the bond market is unsecured. So you, you're not as high up the capital structure. So, you know, theoretically and absolutely, it should pay you more. Um, but there'll be points where you might live to regret that allocation if that's the only thing that you own. Mm-hmm. And having some sort of mix and blends to dampen down that correlation, to dampen down that volatility, which is a huge concern for investors at the moment. You know, they get volatility everywhere and they hate it. Um, so giving them an asset class that holds up, 
You know, if you wanted to go and move your money into something else during a big market sell-off, loans will hold up and you should be able to execute at those levels and therefore you should be able to um, shift capital around in, in a less penal way. And that's one of the big attributes of, of mm -hmm. that as an mm -hmm. asset class. Got it, got it. Thanks for that explanation. Um, so as we uh, look outside of those kind of core four sub-asset classes of high yield and we look at some of the opportunities that are out there that are quote-unquote beyond the index. So um, I'm thinking specifically of some of the other uh, asset classes that uh, the bearings team will invest in in some of our multi-credit high-yield strategies like CLOs, distressed debt, and even emerging market corporate debt. Uh, let's talk through those a little bit. I just want to hear uh, what you're seeing out there in terms of value today. So maybe let's start with CLOs. Yeah, I guess um, the, the first two of those categories, CLOs and distressed debt, those two would be considered alternatives in most investors' buckets. Mm -hmm. The phrase alternative suggests that it's a bit non-core it's a less known asset class. It's not traded in huge volumes. And that's certainly the case with CLOs. Um, both at the top of the capital stack and the bottom of the capital stack, um, CLO liabilities offer considerably more value um, than their corporate uh, equivalent. And what I mean by that, if you get a double B rated liability from the CLO market, it can pay you three, four, 500 basis points more than an equivalent rated double B uh, corporate issuance, mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. though it's backed into a very diversified portfolio of secured credit and should theoretically be much more stable and resilient as a result. But it's just not a market that's well known. It's not a market that people um, have understood. And it's a market that absolutely held up during all the Lehman's crisis. Mm -hmm. So that's a value point that we greatly treasure and we think absolutely fits in a multi-strat product. Moving on to sort of the distressed debt market, you've got to be opportunistic in this market. We're still trading below averages on defaults. We think that changes. Um, we think, though, the opportunity set will not be across the board. You're going to have to be nimble in the way that you dissect it. There's certainly deals that you're going to want to leave alone. Um, there's certain industries where it's very, very difficult to make money in distressed debt, um, you know, retail being the obvious one mm -hmm. um, to pick out. So it's all about being selective. It's about having the reach into the entire asset space and, and being able to be nimble and, and more diversified, I would suggest, than, say, your classic loan-to-own distressed debt strategy. Yep, yep. And then um, finally, the, the EM corporate market, I think, is just evolving very much like Europe and the US market evolved in tandem through the noughties. You know, when I think about the EM corporates nowadays, a lot of the characteristics I see in that high yield market remind me of DM. And I think actually the lines between EM and DM are getting increasingly blurred. Um, you've got a significant proportion of the D EM market actually in DM indexes nowadays because these are very, very large businesses that issue on a global basis. Mm -hmm. Their reach is into multiple markets, not just where they're domiciled. You've got EM corporates out there that whilst they're rated high yield, that rating is more to do with the sovereign that they sit in mm -hmm. than the actual balance sheet. So you're actually getting better balance sheets in some of these markets. Um, you've got blurred jurisdictions, you know, is South Korea really EM or is it DM? Mm. Mainland China, EM or DM? 
a Czechoslovakia EM and DM. So the world is changing and these markets are evolving like all the capital markets evolve and there's a real opportunity set in there. What it isn't though is a market for you to index track. The main problem with EM as a concept is it means radically different things. You know, sure. Argentina is a very different landscape from Indonesia, from China, from South Korea. And so you have to pick the points that you like uh, and trust a manager that knows what they're doing to go in and get the best value out of those particular jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. But it's certainly a market when people are looking for diversification, when people are looking for yield, this is a market that offers both. Um, but it's got to be done in a considered way. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I would think that's true for all three of those categories, CLOs, distressed, and EM corporate. I think uh, all three of those for a high yield allocation potentially offer the opportunity to add some diversification to a portfolio and also the potential to add some incremental yield. But obviously it's got to be done by teams who know what they're doing and with a real eye toward risk management. For our listeners, I would just note that we recently recorded an episode with Stuart Matheson and Brian High on distressed debt. So if you're interested in that topic, I would recommend checking that one out. Martin, one of the other topics that we talked about earlier, specifically when we were talking about the loan market, was this concept of security. And we didn't really talk much about security in the bond market. You and I talked a little bit about it the last time we spoke on this podcast, but Remind me just about the concept of security when it comes to bonds. Yeah, I mean, asset security is a really good idea in a, in a less strong economic environment. Um, and the concept is, and it still holds up if you look at the average deal, that generally speaking, senior secured bonds or loans represent roughly 50% of the capital structure that they're lending to. And yet they have asset security that as a minimum offers them a pledge over the shares so they could sell those businesses to someone else if the business defaults on its obligation to repay that loan or bond. All that means is you're twice covered by the value of the company that's pledged to you, which is an incredibly compelling piece of paper to hold if you're concerned about the future economic recession um, that may be upon us in various jurisdictions throughout the world. So security is a good idea. You typically see... In years like we've just seen, secure bond issuance grow. We've certainly seen that in the US this year, where loan issuers move out of variable rate paper and into the bond market because what they're looking to do is lock down the low interest rate environment in their capital structures. So we're seeing a growth in, in, in particular, the US senior secured bond product. And we don't think that the bond market values this security appropriately. You'll typically see more secured product in the single B category as opposed to the double B category. But I can tell you as an investor who's been in these markets for quite some time, I would be single B secured as opposed to double B unsecured walking into a recession every day of the week. That's a completely uncontroversial statement from my perspective. Mm. Uh, and yet the way that the rating agency thinks about um, life is it, it doesn't value that security. It, it rates things on probability of default, not probability of recovery. Mm -hmm. Frankly, if you're in secured paper, and this is a difficult message to get across to investors, but if you are in secured paper and you experience a default, quite often you don't care because you're going to be covered and the secured paper is often left untouched mm. in those situations. So I'm a huge advocate of it. It's a nice hedge between getting yields and getting a product that people are familiar with and having that sort of backstop to the economic environment being 
worse than you're expecting. Mm -hmm. And I think the opportunity set there is growing because the market is, is we think, going to grow as more and more money flows into bond products. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Thanks for that explanation. Most investors will recognize the secured nature of the loan asset class, but I think even still today, despite the growth of the senior secure bond market, it still seems to be somewhat of a lesser known subset of uh, high yield. You know, we talked a lot about different risks that the market's facing, whether it's recession or whether it's default risk. One of the other risks that's increasingly on the radar, whether we are talking about high yield or other asset classes, or even how we're managing our own business is ESG and the concept of uh, sustainability, whether we're talking about climate change or whether we're talking about social issues or corporate governments, uh, et cetera. Just tell me a little bit about how your team is factoring ESG risks into the equation as part of your analysis. Yeah, this is one of the most topical themes that we're coming across in the market at the moment. There is a huge growth in investors putting inbound inquiries into us about ESG products. There is a huge um, pressure on them to um, source their investments in a more ethical way. Um, And the first thing to say is that there is no friction between what I would consider good credit analysis and um, adhesion to an ESG policy because if you think about it, companies that conduct socially irresponsible activities are more likely to receive regulatory scrutiny and interference. And that in itself is a risk. Mm-hmm. Um, their income streams are more vulnerable as a result of that regulatory scrutiny and interference. And you could just have to look at the pharma business today and the amount of scrutiny that we're getting uh, about drug pricing historically and whether or not that's been appropriate mm-hmm. and how that's going to potentially impact the profitability of some of those businesses out there. So it's absolutely in line. There is, I don't think, any friction between credit analysis and ESG adherence. What investors today, though, are looking for is investor managers that don't just play lip service to it. They want to see more structure. They want to see that you're really incorporating your ability to influence companies um, in your investment proceeds. Um, they, they want to see that you're using your own rating system. They want to see that you're putting um, real scrutiny over how these issues should be priced as against any other issues. Mm-hmm. Um, ESG means a lot of different things to a lot of different investors. So you have to be somewhat flexible about the interpretation of specific inclusion or exclusion mm-hmm. lists. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I think... Um, it's incumbent on managers like ourselves to professionalize the approach and provide investors with the products that they're after. And this isn't a fad. It's not going away. Mm -hmm. It will be with us for many, many decades to come. And and managers will either um, technically get themselves in a place where they can take advantage of that or they'll be left behind. And Mm -hmm. I think it will be foolish to be left behind. Yep. Yep. I totally agree. I think uh, it's, it's loud and clear from our clients or our investors uh, that this is something that is extremely important to them. So it's been really interesting for me to watch even how Bearings has evolved and really advanced in terms of our own internal processes and how we're managing these risks. Okay, so l- taking it all in and looking at the picture and, and kind of where we're going from here. So we're through three quarters of the year. It's been a pretty good year. Bonds have outperformed, U.S. bonds in particular. Loans somewhat lagged, but still having a pretty decent year. You know, still lots of questions out there. What's going to happen with 
these U.S.-China trade negotiations. Are we about to head into a recession? What does that look like? It sounds like your thinking is that we're potentially headed towards more of a mild recession, and maybe that's not the worst thing in the world for a high-yield investor. We're heading into an election year in the U.S., so we've still got Brexit making headlines every other day. So taking it all in, looking at where we are from a spread level, you know, tell me how you're thinking about navigating the next 12 months and any advice you would want to give to investors for uh, doing the same. Yeah, I think uh, the first bit of advice to investors is that never think that the credit markets are logical. They're not, um, they won't logically move or offer returns in the way that you would expect them to be. That means you're going to have to be flexible and you're going to have to somewhat um, move where the opportunity presents itself. I think those opportunity pockets may be shorter lived, but they will definitely uh, be there. I think you've got to be prepared to be contrarian. You know, you just raised the politics in the US. Mm -hmm. That's going to be a theme for at least another 12 months. Industries like healthcare are going to get battered around on the politics that we're seeing at the moment. Mm -hmm. That's a huge opportunity set, but you've got to be prepared to be contrarian. So a flexible approach, I think, is going to pay off. I think, you know, give yourself the latitude to move between markets um, with managers that know what they're doing. It's definitely an asset selection period of time. You don't want to be index tracking anything and allow yourself the ability to capture those yield points that may be fleeting, but they'll definitely be there. Um, and it may be all about sort of individual selection, not um, big macro calls that's going to really pay off for you. Got it. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. So be flexible, be nimble, potentially be contrarian and, and really focus on asset selection and credit analysis as opposed to, you know, taking positions in broader indexes. I think those messages all make a lot of sense really at any time in the cycle, but probably especially today. So Martin, thank you very much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks again for listening to today's show. If you have feedback or ideas on how we can improve it, we want to hear from you. Send us an email at podcast at That's podcast at B-A-R-I-N-G-S dot com. And if you'd like to stay up to date with our latest episodes, you can subscribe to the show by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're there, please take a moment to rate the show or leave us a review. They're all very much appreciated and they make the show easier for others to find. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>